Good morning, church. That's pretty good. Good morning, church. Hey, there we go. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Ganchow. I serve with honor as Bethel's pastor of counseling, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to be here with you this morning. Uh, I'm thankful for Stephanie Ward. I get to work with her on a semi-frequent basis with things, and to see the profound impact that she has had on our church and that our benevolence ministry has had on our church, the story that you just heard is, is not isolated. It is one of many tremendous things that these folks do. So I would encourage you, if you've not given to the benevolence ministry before, this is totally not in my notes, just so you know either, but if you've never given to the benevolence ministry before, the next time that comes around at the first of the month, I would, I would encourage you to maybe not have a cup of coffee and instead generously give because it truly, it's one of those things where it's one thing to say, hey, your giving is going to the gospel. What, what you just heard is a life that was changed, a real person. So my encouragement to you is invest as often as you can in real people. And that's, that's actually a lot of what we're going to end up talking about this morning. I mentioned I'm the pastor of counseling. I also have a heavy hand in our online ministry. You maybe saw over there I was on my tablet for a few minutes beforehand. I was helping the online ministry kind of continue. I also have a heavy hand in our care and recovery ministry as well. So again, a lot of overlap with Stephanie, a lot of overlap in loving other people well and doing that to the best of our ability. Today we're going to continue in our bottom lines of the Bible series. And I think this series is significant. Uh, both this and the one that's coming up, I think starting in fall, are going to do a lot to help us continue to think about what does it really mean to be a Christian? What, it, what does it mean to have a strong-rooted faith? And then very specifically, what does it mean to walk that faith out? What does it mean to live it out? Last week on that, Scott unpacked the first portion of the great command as outlined for us by Jesus. Specifically, he talked about loving the Lord and how it is that takes shape in both our lives and in the lives of Israel. He took us on a brief journey through the history of Israel and really the context of loving God with the whole of who we are. He reminded us that God does not just command us to love him in and of ourselves because, quite honestly, we, we can't. Because of sin, we're not really able to love God the way that we should. But God has also provided the means by which we can love him. God has provided the means through Jesus by which we can approach the throne of heaven. And through Jesus, even imperfectly, we can love God to the fullest extent that sinful people can. This morning then, I want to continue unpacking the greatest commandment as outlined by Jesus in Scripture. Because Jesus makes a very clear point. He says the greatest commandment is compound. It's, it's two parts. So what we're going to do then is unpack the second part in great detail. And to do that, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 22. So if you have a Bible with you or if you're going to be using a tablet or a mobile device, that's great. I'm going to encourage you to go to Matthew 22. And kind of on approach to it, let me describe a handful of things to you. I think the first thing that is worth noting about this passage, the great commandment, is that Matthew 22 is actually one of a couple of places that we could go. We have three different really specific accounts of it. We could have gone to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. We could have gone to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 uh, through 28 and actually beyond. And entering this concept, the greatest commandment, in any one of those places would have afforded us 
a great deal of things that we could have talked about this morning, a great deal of deep theology and practical application. But I think I want to do something a little bit more nuanced than that. We're going to make Matthew 22 our base text, but we're going to draw from Luke a little bit. We're going to draw from Mark a little bit because together they give us a really thorough understanding of everything that is transpiring here. One of the things that I personally appreciate about all those who preach on a regular basis, and really Bethel in general, we pride ourselves in doing deep dives into deep theology. And that is a very good thing. We're going to do that this morning, but we're going to actually do something more than that as well. I want you to leave today with a deep understanding of what it means specifically to love your neighbor as yourself. Because I think it's one of those commands in Scripture, we kind of cherry-pick it out, we throw it up on a screen, we put it on plaques, we know we should love our neighbor as ourself, right? But what does it actually mean to do that? And when Jesus says it here, what would he have specifically meant? And when people like Paul quote Jesus and quote the Old Testament later on with that concept, what were they actually saying? And I would submit to you, if we only go to Matthew 22, we only have a partial glimpse of what that means. And it wasn't, it wasn't just deep theology, it was something else. I, I hate to even refer now to the last year, but, but it is so relevant to how we think about life right now that I think we almost have to. Over the course of the last year, throughout, in fact, the first five, six, seven months of the last year, I would spend sometimes 10 and 12 hours a day in uh, Zoom meetings, because I was doing everything digitally at that time. And I was talking with people from our church and in our community. They had deep roots in God. They had been a Christian for a long, long time. But what had, what had in this season of tension and being stuck at home, there were these times where our faith, it struggled to move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. It struggled to move from, I know this is true, but in this moment, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how. How do I love my neighbor when I cannot see my neighbor? How do I love the people in my life if I cannot spend time with them? Aren't I supposed to be taking care of myself right now? And I found that we, we know a lot of things, but there are times where we need specific instruction on living our faith out. So this morning, what I'm going to do at the very end of our time together, after I help provide, I hope, a deep understanding of what this actually means, I'm going to send you today with not a nebulous practical application. I'm, in fact, going to give you a series of things that I want you to think about, a series of things I want you to measure yourself against and ask yourself, what areas do I need to love my neighbor as Scripture describes better? So to that then, let's go to Matthew 22. On approach to the text, I think it's important that we all understand what's happening as we get here. And I'm going to kind of put it in some kind of modern vernacular for you, okay? And in the literal days, not weeks, not months, but days leading up to Matthew 22, the greatest commandment, Jesus is making what could be called a very big stink. I mean, literally, he has made all kinds of problems for the Jews and for Rome. And ju literally, just in the last few days, a couple of things have happened. Jesus has had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he's now being heralded as the king of the Jews. In a very short span of time, a few years, what has happened is you've got this carpenter that kind of had a small following, 
And that small following kind of turned into a mob. And, you know, that, that, that is a kind of common thing. You've got John the Baptist. Lots of people were going to see John the Baptist. There have been followings at uprisings and, and flash-in-the-pan people. But, but suddenly, now we've got this guy who's got thousands of people following him. Thousands. And he has just been heralded a king. This would have been massively problematic because Israel has not had a king for a very long time. And they were under Roman occupation. So the leaders of the Jewish party, the Israelites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all of these groups of elders, they would be very concerned about this. And Rome, they'd be very concerned about this. This smacks of insurrection. Problematic. Jesus also literally, right after his triumphal entry, manufactures a whip, goes into the temple, and drives out all of the commerce taking place in the temple. The thing is, the commerce in the temple had become kind of commonplace. We know today it was a good thing for Jesus to drive that out, but at that point in time, people would have been aghast. Like, you, you can't do that. You can't drive all of the commerce out of the temple. How are we supposed to make sacrifices? And Jesus answers that. But it would have been revolutionary at the time. Jesus has done all kinds of healing of the sick and the lame, literally in open defiance of the religious elite. They're saying, stop, stop. And Jesus is like, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to stop. And he's constantly opposing them to their faces. Jesus engaged in active verbal combat with the elders and the chief priests every single day at multiple points. And they were literally, I mean, the elders and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were ready to have this guy arrested. They wanted Jesus gone. But what ended up happening is they were afraid. They were afraid that now these thousands of people that were following Jesus around, they would turn on them. That would, I think we could agree, having a mob turn on you would go under the bad things category, right? So they were rightly concerned. So what their plan was is, let's trap Jesus. Let's trap Jesus. It's like the only play left in their playbook. So every single day, every single opportunity is maybe a better word. They're trying to trap Jesus. And that's what we find in Matthew 22 is a trap. Tucked into a trap, Jesus issues the greatest commandment. Let's read it together. It says in Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And then following this, immediately following this, Jesus continues into a scathing correction of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. So far, he literally, in chapter 23, the next chapter, he goes on to pronounce woes and condemnations on them. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. This would have been a very bad day to be a Pharisee and a scribe. This was not going well, and it had not gone well for them, which is why they were so upset. Now, honestly, transparently, I would love to deviate from the bottom line series and just preach this. Just preach this and Luke and Mark and just really talk about the significance for us for what is happening here. But there is something so important 
that is a bottom line of our faith, that we, we truly cannot deviate from this. We need to know this. This, too, is significant for us. Today, Tucker, tucked right in the middle of a rebuke of the religious elite, the pious believers of that day, is the greatest commandment of all. Love God with everything that you have, what Scott preached last week, and love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? If you were to look very closely at the language, there's a fascinating play on words that Jesus uses here. What Jesus does to help us understand this is he uses us as kind of an analogy. What Jesus literally says is, love others as you actively already love yourself. Jesus is actually presupposing onto his hearers, onto the Pharisees, onto the scribes, you already love yourselves. Love others that way. What, they, what the audience would have heard if we wanted to try and do like a direct translation that's maybe even slightly more precise than what I read for you, it would be this. You must love your neighbor as you are already loving yourself right now. So if we jumped then over to Luke 10, which I think is, in a, this is one of those times I'm going to draw from Luke 10. It's one of those parallel passages. We actually find that the lawyer that posed the question to Jesus, he actually responds to Jesus when he issues this commandment. In Luke 20, 10, 29, the lawyer says this, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, so you know his posture, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He really was asking for a bad day. Like, it's like they're asking for it. Seriously. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus, what Jesus does here is proceeds to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. What Jesus does here is tell a definitive story of and call to sacrificial love and mercy. Even on your enemies. Even on people that sin against you. Even on the unclean. He says, love everyone regardless of who they are or what it means. Love everyone. Love your enemies. Love even a Samaritan? That's what Jesus is saying here. He is issuing a profound thought. Furthermore, Jesus' hearers, the lawyer, the religious elite, they would have heard something else very specific. Remember, they are students of the law. What they would have heard Jesus do here is call them, the lawyer, to holiness. Now, you don't read that in this text. But those who were well-versed in the law, they would have heard a specific call to holiness from the law. And that's where I'm going to pause and I'm going to give you our bottom line for today, right now. And we're going to build from it. The bottom line that Jesus issues here is this. Loving your neighbor is expected by God in living out holiness. It's, it's not optional. Loving your neighbor is expected by God in living out holiness. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and all of the hearers would have heard. But the Pharisees and scribes and the lawyer, they would have heard it just a little bit more sharply. We'll talk about that. What is holiness, though? What is it to be holy? J.H. Hertz, he's a Bible scholar, defines it this way, and I thought, it, I thought this was a very helpful definition given the series that we're in. He defines holiness as, holiness 
is the spirit in which we fulfill the obligations of life in its simplest and commonest details. In this way, by doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. That is everyday life transfigured. That's everyday life transformed. Now, maybe that phrase, Micah 6.8, is familiar to you. It's because from our very first message in our bottom line series, that was the definition, or that was the concept that we taught on. This is what the Christian life should be. It's walking in mercy and doing justice and being humble before God. Pastor Steve said, if you are a Christian, this is how you are supposed to live. Holiness is being honorable and just, loving and showing mercy, and walking humbly and gratefully before God. What that means is there's no entitlement, no expectancy, no undue honor, no self-esteem, and no self-love. We'll talk more about that in a little while as well. Holiness is loving God with everything in us and then measuring the love we have or wish we had for ourselves and instead lavishing it on others. It's the love and care that you want to have for yourself and pointing it outward. So what I want to do now is kind of treat this like an Oreo, okay? Or maybe Neapolitan ice cream. Yeah. This is, this is kind of an imperfect analogy, but go with me. The thing about an Oreo or Neapolitan ice cream is there are three components to each thing. And each one, you know, the thing about it is, like with an Oreo, what, what's the thing you do with an Oreo? You break it apart, right? You're like, can I get an equal amount of cream on both sides? Or maybe you're one of those deviants that tries to get nothing on one and all on the other. I don't know. My, my point is, there's a lot of components there. However, there's another thing you can do. You can leave it intact or break it apart, and you can dunk it in milk, right? You can do all kinds of things with an Oreo. It's the same thing with Neapolitan ice cream. Vanilla is pretty good. Chocolate's pretty good. Strawberry, that's not my personal favorite, but I enjoy it from time to time. But the thing about it is when you scoop all three of those things together, what you get is not just the individual flavors, but a depth of flavor. You get something that you would never have if you did not experience all of those things combined. Much like the Oreo, all three components, the two cookies, the cream, and maybe even a fourth in the milk. You get a much better depth of flavors. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to jump backwards and jump forwards so that we truly understand what loving one's neighbor means. Matthew 22 and Luke 10 are really good. And the Pharisees and scribes would have heard what Jesus wanted them to hear. But what they would have heard most specifically was Jesus quoting Leviticus chapter 19. How often do we go to Leviticus anymore? When you think of Leviticus, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? The law. You, what comes to mind is rigid expectancy, rules, standards. And maybe for us, if you think about it more than just the law, maybe what comes to your mind then is now we enjoy volunteered desire. We get to do those things because we desire to. We get to obey in obedience, not out of compulsion via the law. In kind of a cool turn of events, in an interesting way that Jesus does things, Jesus quotes specifically Leviticus 19, 
18. What Jesus is doing here is making a point as he often did. When, he was, when, when, this, when these religious elite would come to him and try and question him or correct him, what he would often do is pull from the law to give them a fuller understanding. And that's exactly what happens here as well. He used it to teach and rebuke simultaneously, which for us should cause us to jump up to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture, even Leviticus, is still useful. Jesus used it as useful. So it's worth noting that Jesus used this law to oppose them, a law he knew all too well. But why this place? Because in Leviticus chapter 19, we have Moses specifically directed by God to teach Israel a series of laws. He taught them in in sections, and each section was punctuated with a phrase, I am the Lord your God. So here are my instructions, I am the Lord your God. Because what God was saying is, I am the standard. I, the God who led you out of Egypt, the God who is leading you through the wilderness, the one who has brought you to Mount Sinai, the one who is guiding you, I am the standard. What what God is saying here is, I am holy. Be like me. Listen to what Leviticus 19, 1 and 2 says. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And then what you get for the rest of chapter 19 are quite literally instructions in holiness. So Jesus used instructions in holiness that the Pharisees, scribes, and the lawyer had no rebuttal for because they knew. They knew the law. What Leviticus 19 talks about is honoring parents, not having idols, being honest, not exploiting other people, doing justice, and a host of other things. When we get to verses 11 through 18 of Acts, or excuse me, of Leviticus chapter 19, what we find is that we enter into a section on neighborliness. And if you've got a Bible open, I'd kind of encourage you to look down on it. Sometimes in your Bible you have headings or kind of like titles for a section. Many Bibles, most Bible commentaries, have a title here on something like instructions in neighborliness. And what this was was instructions for Israel to know how to interact with one another. It was instructions for them to be neighborly to other Israelites and other people that they would come in contact with. But this was a very specific thing. These instructions in neighborliness were repeated then in a seven-verse sequence. And the language would have been drawing the attention of the hearers to the idea of love your neighbor. This would have been very clear to the hearers. One of those Bible scholars that I mentioned talks about neighborliness and titles it that way. He has a very important quote I'll share with you. He says this, Someone listening to the laws, so the hearers of Leviticus 19, someone listening to the laws would hear the repeating sequence, the slight delay in mentioning neighbor for the third time, kind of in the larger context, would make the listener specifically alert to the great command to love his neighbor as himself. Meaning the entire text to this point was building to Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. It was building to the need to love your neighbor. This was the thing that encapsulated everything that had just been said. Listen to what it says in verses 17 and 18. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. 
But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Loving your neighbor is an expectation of God in living out holiness. Do you see that? And Jesus was using that and pointing it, not just at his general audience, but most specifically, those that were challenging them. Consider the fullness here of what is being said in Leviticus. In verses 11 and 12, Israel is being told to be honest with their neighbors. They were told to not exploit them in verses 13 and 14, to do justice and be fair in 15 and 16, to correct a neighbor in love, to correct, even correct them, to not hold a grudge, to not take vengeance in 17 and 18, all because they love them as themselves. Note, too, what that verse does. It uses three different distinctions to say the same thing. It says brother, it says neighbor, and sons of your own people. One of the other subtle things that would have been happening here is Jesus would have been correcting the religious elite of how they treated everyone else. You've got to remember, at times, the Pharisees were described as whitewashed tombs. They were described as outwardly very pastoral, but then inwardly and behind the scenes, they were very, very corrupt. All of this would have been known as by the hearers and the knowers of the law. Jesus' subtle rebuke of using this would have been so sharp and needling that it would have just grated them. That's why, for example, you'd think the lawyer would want to justify himself. He'd want to justify himself. So then back to uh, Matthew 22, deep in this tandem teaching to his followers and this correction to the religious elite, Jesus makes this age-old, timeless assertion. Love God with the whole of who you are and love everyone else as you wish yourself were loved or as you actively love yourself. On this ancient instruction in holiness, on outward love, on humility rests everything else. Loving your neighbor is holy. This is, this is why we must think about holiness. This is why we cannot just go through the motions of the Christian life. This is why we can't phone it in. We're called to be holy. How often in Scripture are we told to be holy? Very often. We have to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is so significant. But let's not camp here. Let's go to the third flavor to really get the fullness of this. Turn in your Bibles over to Galatians 5. In Galatians chapter 5, we have the Apostle Paul talking about freedom. Okay? In Leviticus, God commanded obedience under the law. Yet we know from the end of that passage in verse 17 and 18, Moses still appealed to the conscience of the people, reminding them that love is the motivation behind neighborly holiness. We know because he said, you shall, don't hold a grudge. Don't hold a grudge, but love. He wasn't just saying obey. He was saying, but love. Even in the midst of the law, Moses appealed to the conscience. But here in Galatians 5.14, what Paul is doing is talking about the, fulfill, the fulfillment, the fullness of the law. For you ladies who were in Women of the Word this past session, our own Joy Cots of the Cedar Lake campus, she did a tremendous unpacking of the book 
of Galatians for us, as did all of the teachers who walked our Women of the Word ministry through this, and they taught extensively about freedom in Christ. That is what is being talked about here. Some Bible scholars actually call the book of Galatians the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. The concept of a Magna Carta, it's actually kind of more of a historical thing. It's the idea that you're referring to a definitive document guaranteeing rights, privileges, and freedoms. And that's what Galatians is. It's a guarantee of the freedoms, rights, and privileges that a Christian has from sin. It's a guarantee of the freedoms that we have in the gospel by grace through faith. In Galatians chapters 1 through 4, Paul defends his apostolic authority because he had to do that here. And then he defends the gospel versus the work of the law because what had again happened is people that had become followers of Christ, they had, they had surrendered their life to Christ in the gospel, had begun to kind of ease their way back into legalistic tendencies. They had begun to once again mandate portions of the law that they had actually been set free from. In the final two chapters, what, <clears throat> what Paul did is teach on liberty that results in mature responsibility and holiness. Those are the words that you're going to find in Galatians, in the final two chapters of Galatians. Mature, responsible, and holy. And there we find that theme again. Every time love your neighbor as yourself occurs, we find the theme, love, being the ultimate motivation behind holiness. It's evident every single time. Because love for your neighbor and holiness have a direct relationship. It's not like this. It's not even like this. It's like this. To love your neighbor is to practice holiness. Look at verses 13 and 14 of Galatians 5. It says, <clears throat> For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we don't read it here, but Paul is actually using a play on words. In verse 13, Paul says to serve one another in love. The word serve here would have been kind of a paradox. And the hearers or the readers of Paul would have been like, what, what are you saying? What, what it would have rung to if you weren't paying attention is Paul was describing the very thing that we were set free from. The word serve here would have actually heard or tasted to their ears a lot like slavery. Like, what do you mean, be a slave to one another in love? How does that work? We were just freed from slavery to sin. What Paul is trying to do here in this paradox, in kind of a bit of maybe modern vernacular again, he's saying, Christians, use your newfound freedom to voluntarily be a slave to one another in love. Be so servant-focused that all you know to do is love one another all the time. Be so focused on voluntary love that it is as if you are shackled to it. It would have been very profound. It would have been, you know, Paul wanted their attention. The thing about biblical writers is they, they wanted the attention of their hearers. They were conveying very specific messages. What Paul was basically doing is it was kind of like he was saying, come here, come here. He's like, listen, guys, 
This is so true. This is so serious. You are so free from slavery to sin and so free from the law that the law is fulfilled. It's completed. You're set free. The whole law is fulfilled when you voluntarily love. The whole thing, just love. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as you love yourself. The whole thing rests on that. And then Paul goes on to quote directly Leviticus 19.18. We, they, fulfill the whole law when instead of loving ourselves, instead of being self-serving, we give. We surrender our desires, we surrender our passions, and we use them as an opportunity for total sacrifice. We choose to become voluntary slaves to love others as outward pointing arrows. Love is the ultimate motivation behind holiness. The Pharisees and scribes, they would not have received that well. It would have meant a diametric change in the entirety of their conduct because they were not loving well. We can be thankful for Paul, who gives us a very real, very practical understanding of what this means. Be a slave to loving others. Be dedicated with the wholeness of who you are to loving God and loving others. So let me give you a summary statement then to build from, from this point forward. It's this. Loving others as we actively love ourselves is doing justly to others, loving mercy and showing it to others and walking humbly in that way before our God. Always be an outward pointing arrow in those ways. So how do we do this practically? What does it look like to practically love your neighbor as yourself? I'm going to spend the last few minutes that we have together giving you a series of practical things that I'm just going to encourage you to measure yourself against, to pray over, to make decisions around. The first is this. It comes from Colossians 2.8. It says, do not be deceived by worldly philosophy. Well, that, that's not what it says. But what I'm harmonizing from it is, do not be deceived by worldly philosophy about self-love and self-esteem. Now, that might be an interesting thing to note to you, but let me, let me just share this. There are those in uh, the Christian community that very much misunderstand Matthew 22, Luke 10, and the passage from Mark. They very, very much misunderstand them. In fact, and as one who's engaged in the counseling world on an ongoing basis, there are entire systems of errored Christian psychology that misunderstand this verse as well. Literally, entire books have been written with a misunderstanding of Matthew 22. What we find is that they, they call self-love a prerequisite for loving others. Walter Trobisch wrote this book. He called it Love Yourself. It makes the case that Matthew 22 uh, 39 in its parallel passages state you, state you have to love yourself before you can love others. He says, self-love is a prerequisite and a criterion for our conduct toward our neighbor. This, the belief of some, in some psychological circles that man must acquire self-love before loving others sheds new light on a command which Jesus emphasized as ranking in importance next to loving God. 
Friends, that is about as close to heresy as I ever want to get. That's a really profound and very wrong statement to make. What he's doing here is he's transforming two commands, love God and love others, into three. What he's saying is that this verse says, love God, love yourself, and then love others. And that is not at all what the text has to say. What, has, what this has kind of transformed into culturally um, is something like the Maslowian hierarchy by Abraham Maslow. Is anybody familiar with that? I'm not going to throw that up on the screen, but the, the hierarchy kind of looks like a pyramid, and it has all these human needs going up to the top where you find transcendence, self-actualization, and kind of just general, okay, I am who I am, and I'm okay with who I am, and you're all okay with who you are, and we're going to all be okay with each other up here. But along the way, in order to reach those higher levels, you actually have to pass through the lower levels, according to Maslow. And the love and the level that you have to get through before you get to love of others is love and care for self. You have to go through them in order to get to the top. This has infiltrated many of the psychological circles that, um, are, are, quite frankly, are existent today. And I wish I could say this is isolated. It's unfortunately not. The now late and well-respected Christian counselor, Dr. Larry Crabb, believed this. He, in fact, wrote an entire book using it as some of the foundation of it called Effective Biblical Counseling. He said this in the book, In order to be well-adjusted, you must reach the stage of self-actualization, referring to Maslow's hierarchy. In order to reach that stage, you must pass through the other four stages first. Now, here's the thing. Dr. Crabb has written many tremendous things. He was on Focus on the Family and all kinds of other stuff. We do not judge the man by the measure of one thing, one misunderstanding. But the misunderstanding is profound because it does misunderstand a very definitive command in the Bible. And this has infiltrated many circles in which we are not even aware. My encouragement to you is to be aware of that. You cannot love yourself more than you love other people. It is contrary to what the Bible says. So my question for you from this first point is this. Are you more concerned with your own welfare? Are you more concerned with your own esteem? Or are you concerned with the esteem of others? And if you're more concerned with your own esteem, my question for you is why? Where did that come from? And what do you need to do to bring yourself into more obedience to what Jesus taught? There's a couple of others here from James 5.16. We love our neighbor as ourselves by praying for one another. Every night, or at least most nights, before we put our kids to bed, my wife and I will pray with our children. And one of the things that we ask them almost, I can't say every night, but almost every night is, who do you want to pray for? Not us. Who do you want to pray for? Do you want to pray for grandma and granddad? Do you want to pray for your friends? Do you want to pray for this, that, or the other person? Who are you going to pray for? Because we are trying to teach them that praying for others is significant. Who are you praying for in your life? Who do you love as yourself enough that you go before the Lord constantly in prayer for them? And if, and if you're not, I would ask you why. These are, these are really important things. Praying for others is an act of love. From Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, 
Letting go of offenses, not holding grudges. Do you hold on to things? When someone has wronged you, when your spouse says something unkind to you, when your children disrespect you, when a coworker edges you out for something that was rightfully yours, do you hold a grudge? Ephesians 4.25, do you put away falsehood and speak only the truth to your neighbors? I would ask you this question from that. How often when you're talking to somebody, do you build yourself up to be just a little better? Just a little. Just a little better. Often. Just, just enough to like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really okay. Is that speaking truth to your neighbor? Or is it falsehood? Do you intentionally, verbally build one another up? From Ephesians 4.29. Who do you seek out and say, hey, you're awesome. Hey, I really appreciate how you do this. Hey, son, daughter, you are really gifted in this way. Spouse, I love you. You're amazing. I should tell you that more. Who? Do you walk wisely in this life, making the most of every moment? It's very easy to get distracted with things. Sports are good. Work is good. We need to provide. We have essentials in life. But how often do we prioritize the essentials over relationship? How often do these non-essentials take the priority in you where you stop making the most of other people? Are you at peace with one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.13? Or is there constant tension and stress between you and those that you should be loving? Are you bearing with one another, forgiving each other? Forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget it. What forgiveness means is that you have no, you've cleared the deck of the wrong, you've cleared it, but it's not as if it didn't happen. Trust has to be re-earned. Things have to be restored. But do you bear with one another? Do you take up the load of the fact that they actually offended you and instead of holding it against them, carry that load with them in an act of restoration? 2 Peter 2.17. Are you honoring everyone, loving other Christians intentionally, Showing this to others in respect to God and obeying your earthly authorities. These are all, and we could go on. Like, there are more. But my question for you is this. If these are the things that the Bible calls us to point at others, which they are, if those are the things, how well are you doing them? When you look at this list, And you ask yourself the question, who am I actively praying for? Does anyone come to mind? Are you making the most of every moment? Is there constant tension in all of your relationships? If so, I would submit to you, as you leave today, there are some things you want to think about. There are some ways in your life where you can make immediate change.
and you can love your neighbors in an act of holiness better than when you walked in the door today. My encouragement to you is to apply that kind of love for your neighbors to that end. 